Hi, and welcome to the Big 5D Podcast. Our mission is to help you become smarter about the emerging Africa and Middle East local digital ecosystem. So today's episode is sponsored by Mono Solutions. Mono Solutions delivers the ultimate white label website builder and suite of digital products for small businesses across the digital landscape to drive their businesses online. As a SaaS-based solution, Mono empowers digital services providers with a true do-it-with-me approach to offer digital marketing solutions and deliver real value to their SMB clients. So today's episode is the first in our FinTech Founders series on the Big 5D podcast. We're going to talk to entrepreneurs building the tools for financial inclusion for small businesses in Africa and the Middle East. We're really excited about our first guest. She's Megan McCormick, and she's co-founder and CEO of Oze. Megan comes from both the management, consulting, and the nonprofit world. She's a former Peace Corps volunteer, and she actually launched Guinea's first business accelerator. So, Oze, which rhymes with Ole, is a Ghana-based fintech designed to improve access to capital for African small businesses. The company recently raised a seed round and is well on its way to expanding its business from a product as well as a geographic standpoint. Now, Oze was founded back in 2018, which feels like a thousand years ago to most of us. Her co-founder, Dave Emmett, and her emerged the business from the nonprofit space. So it maintains a really mission-driven approach to, um, you know, for financial inclusion for small businesses and for growing youth employment in the West African region. And their ambitions are to, to move beyond that eventually. Uh, and one thing you're going to be find conspicuous right away from this interview is uh, two American accents. And uh, Megan's a native Pennsylvanian, educated in the U.S., uh, came to Africa with the Peace Corps, as we noted before, and she never really looked back. And I'm uh, Charles Laughlin, your host. I'm based in Chicago, frequent, uh, I'm a global traveler, at least before uh, COVID I was, and uh, I'm a co-founder of Big Five Digital. I'm also a senior analyst with Locology and a an independent analyst, writer, and podcast producer, among other things. Very excited to be presenting this podcast to you today. We really hope you enjoy our conversation with Megan. Megan, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Well, welcome and thank you for joining us. Uh, so, Oze, I meant to ask this before we started. Is that pro- pronounced correctly? That is okay. correct. I've like been- Ole with a Z. Okay, I've been saying that all along, and then I realized I'm, no one's uh, uh, no, hadn't had the opportunity to ask you if that was right. Okay, welcome to the show. Uh, I just let's start out with you know here we are two two Americans talking about fintech in Africa. So tell me about your background. What led you to become a fintech founder in West Africa? Sure. So straight after university, I joined the Peace Corps, and I was a community economic development volunteer in the Republic of Guinea, which is also in West Africa, and was focused on issues of youth unemployment and really found entrepreneurship to be a pathway to help create jobs. And so while I was a volunteer, I co-founded an organization called Dare to Innovate, which was Guinea's first business accelerator, and really like started working on the problems on the ground, how we can help young people start businesses, how we can make those businesses be successful, and just kind of got bit by the entrepreneurial bug and, and really engaged emotionally and mentally in solving this problem. And so as we were scaling up our our support for these small business owners, we started realizing, okay, what are the other bottlenecks? And are there ways to remove these bottlenecks 
not just for the thousands of entrepreneurs that we were training, but for the millions of entrepreneurs that we need to have growth-oriented businesses across the continent. And that's where Oze really started. Okay. And the Accelerator, what kind of uh, businesses were coming out of that? We're small business accelerators, so we focus on uh, taking unemployed youth and getting them to the point where they can create 10 jobs. Of course, some entrepreneurs have really amazed us and scaled beyond that, but that's truly the goal. About 50% are in the agribusiness value chain, and about the other 50% are in essential services like education, public health, recycling. These are the kinds of businesses that are really thriving in Guinea. Okay. So let's talk about Oze. Uh, Ole, Oze. Um, so it started out, you know, from the experience you had running this accelerator, right? So what were the pain points you identified that made you decide this was the business you want to start and kind of talk us through? And were there like a new, did it start out as something and become something else? You know, kind of talk about that a little too. That's often the case. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, if we think back to the last big public health crisis, it was the Ebola crisis in West Africa. And this really swept across Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone um, right before we were starting our second accelerator cohort at Dare to Innovate. And so the first kind of the first seed that was planted towards Ozai was, okay, we need to be able to support these entrepreneurs remotely. And one of the things we were missing, not being on the ground with them, was how they were performing. Um, once Ebola kind of got a bit more under control and I was able to go back to the region, I would get in bush taxis and spend hours and hours and hours on the road sitting down with these entrepreneurs so that I could get their ledger books and type up the information into Excel. So I could tell them things like, oh, you're selling at a negative profit margin. This is why your cash balance is going down. And you compound that we had like many experiences where the fact that the entrepreneur didn't have good access to good financial records really inhibited their growth. So we had an entrepreneur who was and is very successful. Um, and we set up an investor for him in the capital. And he came down from his town where he lives. It was probably eight to 12 hours in a bush taxi. And we said, great, like show us your financials. And he had left the notebooks uh, that he used back up in his, back up at his uh, enterprise. So that was kind of all floating around. And then we looked really, because both Ozai and Dare to Innovate are animated by this desire to solve the problem of youth unemployment. And we look at the fact that there are about 11 million African youth joining the job market each and every year. And two thirds of African youth are unemployed or underemployed. And for me, I think one of the big causes is that the dominant form of enterprise is a micro or small business. And the vast majority of these Com companies, it, it changes uh, country to country, are sole proprietors. So we're like, okay, if we want to solve youth unemployment, it's not just about making every entrepreneurial youth succeed as an entrepreneur, but taking those small businesses and exist that exist and really scaling them up. So, uh, you know, we, we um, the business took lots of different iterations, but it's always kind of focused on that that problem of solving why don't small businesses in sub-Saharan Africa grow. Um, I have a, a corporate career. Uh, I was a management consultant focused on innovation strategy using human-centered design to solve problems at big global corporations. And so we applied the same process to solving that problem. And so that's where the first iteration of Ozai actually came. Um, the buyer has changed, the business model has changed, the app has changed, but always kind of how can we capture data and help businesses use that to succeed? 
Okay. So if I understand it, the thing that's preventing small businesses from becoming bigger or bigger employers, uh, I mean, I access to capital is one, but it seems like just basic, um, sort of just upgrading their, the, the, the platform they're using to run the business so that they understand yeah. the numbers. <laughs> yeah. we, we see it kind of as like a root, root cause, right? Mm -hmm. Because first of all, if you don't have actionable data about your business, then you're going to make bad decisions. You might not be profitable. You're not going to going to grow, but you also you can't access Exactly. Right. So the analogy we use is like a business using a notebook or not keeping any records, but using a notebook is like a bucket with lots and lots of holes in it. So yeah, maybe you'll attract the sucker to invest in your business or a loan that comes at really high interest rates, but they're like, basically will lend to anyone. So you pour that capital in the top and it pours out all of the holes. And at the end of the day, your bucket is empty again. So right. at Oze, we try to patch up those holes through data-driven management. And then starting in 2020, we, we started you know, seeing, could we help pour the water in more effectively? And, and so we've seen that it's a combination of both that really make our small businesses grow. Okay. So uh, nuts and bolts, where is the, uh, is the small business your source of revenue or are they more your audience or are they uh, talk about them versus the banks and where the, you know, where the, where the, yeah. where the money. So <laughs> I, I truly believe that, you know, the company succeeds when we design and build for the small business owner. And that is much easier to do when they're also the paying customer. I think one of the reasons that international development has not been effective is because your beneficiary is never the buyer. So you end up designing programs that will suit the needs of donors rather than will suit the needs of the people you're trying to serve. So we always are, we're very customer centric, very small business centric. And so they can upgrade from a free version to a paid version. And that brings in revenue for the company. We also do you know, earn income when we connect these businesses to loans, but only loans that they're able to pay back. And so because um, the spread on credit is not our only source of funding, we only you know, recommend loans to businesses that can take them, recommend loans to businesses that will be better off because they took this loan. And we can keep the interest rates lower because we're not you know, solely relying on that spread to operate. Okay, so is another, so what is your understanding of say default rates and, and sort of the, the effectiveness of lending in to small business in Africa and how are you addressing that? It's, it's all over the place. Like you get a different default rate depending on who you look at, how they define small business. Was it digital? Was it uh, a traditional loan? Was it credit backed? So, I mean, for me, I think if you look at the interest rates in Ghana, so we surveyed our customers when we first started getting into the idea of giving them access to credit. And we asked them, you know, have you taken a loan before? And if yes, what was the average or what was the interest rate you paid monthly? We averaged that out and the average monthly interest rate was 13%. Hmm. And that average was brought down because we had a bunch of uh, customers from a government program that gave 1% annual loans. So most of our customers, the modal answer was much higher than that 13%. So if a business is taking out a loan, with interest rates higher than their profit margins, that will cause default before any bad actors, right, will cause default. Right. So we, we believe that that's the first step, making sure the capital is affordable, it has a clear business use case, 
the business owner understands the terms. Uh, there was a study um, done in Uganda that found timely reminders uh, for the repayment of loans actually led to a higher repayment rate than even telling people, if you pay back on time, we'll give you cash back. So it's not, we don't have like bad actors running around trying to get loans. It's that small business owners, especially in markets where there's not a lot of infrastructure, have crazy, busy, hectic lives. And sometimes they just forget. So with OSA, we don't just look at the loan product. We look at how the loan product fits into the entire customer experience. That has to do with preparing them to get that loan in the first place. But once once they're you know in the process of applying, making sure they understand this is what you're going to owe and it's going to be owed on these exact dates. And then once the loan is dispersed, giving them timely reminders about paying back. And so with that, we actually haven't seen any defaults in the portfolio that we fully manage. Really? Um, okay, that's very interesting. And so, so what can you give a sense of the average size? Um, are these necessarily all micro loans or is that a mis misperception? I mean, what is the range in size? So the minimum loan that we'll give is $100, and mm -hmm. it's about 500 Ghanaian CDs with exchange rates sometimes a little bit less than $100. Sure. The average loan we're giving out is about $1,000, $1,300, and we'll go up to $5,000. So we talk about the missing middle as this like kind of monolith of businesses that we need to serve, and that could be anywhere from the $1,000 loan all the way up to a million dollars of uh, debt facility. Well, those businesses have like very different needs. And so we think that by coming in at the lower end of the missing middle, uh, the bottom of the missing middle, we can actually fill the pipeline for people to be able to have the right records and track record to take these loans. So we see it as a kind of a, um, a big, it, it will have an outsized effect on solving the problem of financing the missing middle in the markets where we operate. Okay. So if you were to Pick one term other than fintech, obviously, to describe the business you're in. What is that one term? Yeah, we fought the term fintech for a really long time. Mm. Uh, we would call ourselves small business SaaS. Uh, okay. But for the markets where we operate, fintech means something. Small business SaaS doesn't necessarily because, you know, in the U.S., you start a small business. You have a full tech stack. Like, oh, yeah. You can use uh, Stripe for payments or Square for payments. Squarespace to make your website, HubSpot to run your CRM. And so small business SaaS is a category. Here, the tech stack for the companies we're targeting is cash in a notebook. Um, mm -hmm. So we're really building the category of small business SaaS in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Interesting. Yeah, a little bit of an aside, when I've actually done a fair amount of research on small business SaaS. I've run research programs on SaaS adoption in the state among small businesses mm -hmm. in the states and you're right it's like an average of i think eight to ten apps per small business or something in that range um so it's it's a completely different uh, mindset fintech you know is, is a familiar term in the states but small SaaS and small business apps i think are more the, the language that's being used i think fintech uh, small business won't say my fintech provider is X, you know, they'll, <laughs> yeah. you know, they'll say my accounting app is QuickBooks and my, you know, Squarespace for my website and so on and so on. So I, I get what you're saying. Um, but, you know, I guess you know, you're, you're in the fintech category, like it or not. So um, yeah. uh, talk about where the product goes um, from here, you know, and, and then also, yeah, I'm also interested in the underlying technologies you're using to improve your product over time? Yeah, so the next, I mean, 
imminently will be releasing Ose in French. That okay. covers, you know, between French and English, we have coverage in most countries on the continent. It's really exciting. All of our management team is bilingual. We've all lived and worked in Francophone Africa. Um, but once we enable uh, French-English usage, the next big feature coming out is payments. So our customers will be able to, through partnerships, depending on the country, send and receive payments directly through the Ozai app. I think this is beneficial for several reasons. The first is it's a better user experience. I can, right now in Ozai, send you a payment reminder. But once payments are integrated, I can send you a payment reminder and you can just pay me directly. So I can stop leakage out of my accounts receivable. But the other thing is most transactions are cash right now. And we've gotten pretty good at understanding, you know, are these real transactions? Did this count? Like, are they missing things? But if we can actually see the money move, we know that transaction happened. Even if you would otherwise forget to record it, it gets into your records. And so that gives us more rich data that we can use to improve our insights, as well as improve, obviously, our credit risk score. And then thirdly, make just a much more seamless experience to borrow money and repay it for a loan. Okay. So that's the next big thing. And then after that, um, inventory management. Okay. But is uh, your data your real core, your core value, the data that you're collecting, or is our core value is growth, a mm -hmm. profitable growth. If you're a small business owner using Oze, your business is more likely than not to be better now that you're using Oze than before. We, you know, as someone who thrives on data, loves data, I believe that data is a way to do that. But I also think like I'm excited down the road to build in customer relationship management features, right? Mm -hmm. It's not really data, but if, um, you know, it's a way of uh, Prince, organizing data. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. If Prince buys from me once a month and then I come to a month and Prince hasn't bought from me, can I push him a notification? Can I push him a discount or a reminder? So for our customers, like they don't, they were like, okay, Oze is my partner in growth. And that's exactly what we strive to be. We just do that through data. Okay. So you're kind of striving to be a business management SaaS platform for small, very small businesses. <laughs> We call ourselves like a different thing every day. Sometimes we're well, like that's a more of a description than a term. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If mo if ERPs didn't suck, um, okay. but basically we're we're your partner in growth, and that's okay. that's what we want to be. Okay. Okay. So so let's um, broaden the the scope a little bit here and kind of talk. You know, uh, using fintech again, it's it's obviously a um, <laughs> very frothy, very active business because there's so many identifiable pain points and, and using technology to solve them, you know, the wallet, the, uh, you know, the lending issue, you know, just sort of organizing the money, uh, accounts payable, paying and receiving money, all of those things sort of fit in the broader uh, purview of fintech. Where do you think, um, how would you describe the market? Is it oversaturated? Are there too many payment solutions? Are, are there too few? Uh, you know, <laughs> kind of, just give us a sort of a state of play in the sort of the fintech market. And you can talk just about your region of Africa yeah. uh, instead of the whole continent. But, you know, just talk about, you know, where it's at. So I would say if there's anywhere we're oversaturated, it's payments. And I don't think we're oversaturated yet. I think we might be headed in that direction because where uh, we've seen, you know, success, if you want to define success by exits or big 
ticket investments. We've seen success in payments and therefore we will have more investment in payments. I'm really excited. I've been over to Kenya many, many times and they've had M-Pesa for such a long time. And you're able to see how, I mean, now it's probably more than a decade, how when you have reliable, ubiquitous digital payment rails, all the innovation that can sit on top of it. So if we need like a little bit too, like too many payment providers in West Africa for a while to enable the ecosystem on top of it to flourish, I, I'm all for that. I think some places where we see like, and this is specifically gone, a massive gaps is around uh, escrow. So, you know, e-commerce hasn't really taken off uh, in Ghana, in West Africa, or really across the continent to the extent people thought it would because of this issue of trust. Um, we interview customers all the time and we were partnering with an e-commerce platform and we were asking them, you know, would you want to list on this e-commerce platform? Why not? Why? Et cetera. And like, you know, the thing is like, you think you buy a shoe on that platform and it comes to your house and it's the shoe for a doll. And we heard the same thing, like you get the small, like minuscule version of whatever you order. And so there's just very little trust there. It's really hard to return things. And so we do cash on delivery, but then that's expensive and that's dangerous. So I think if we could have escrow for e-commerce, like that would really help. In the US, we have it without really thinking about it. Like if Amazon sends me junk and they won't refund me, I call my credit card company and they refund me. Um, I think payroll is a huge pain point. It's so manual here. Like it involves like moving paper, moving cash. Um, so for me, those are really two really big pain points that I think would help, you know, the infrastructure and help others like uh, tech companies flourish. Do you see yourselves rolling the, all those things up into a kind of a SaaS super app for small businesses? <laughs> There's so much we could do, right? Because uh, small businesses have all these needs. Like the, we need to build the whole tech stack, basically, that they have access to in the U.S. Um, we can't build that ourselves. We don't want to build that ourselves. There are you know, more than 50 countries that we hope to be in over the next couple of years. So we really take a partnership approach. If we go into a market and we're like, okay, most tech-enabled companies are using this payroll platform, then we want to create a partnership with that play payroll platform and allow them to serve our customers who have employees. So you do that through integrations or do you have an app marketplace or how do you how do you approach that? So when we've done it so far, we've done it with integrations or with uh, distribution partnerships. But it's something that we have a couple more features that are core to the product that we really want to build, and then we'll focus more on plugging into others. Okay. Okay. So, um, so you, yeah, so you, you've identified those areas. Now, what do you, I, I kind of don't like these conversations to all be like all about COVID, but I haven't asked you about that yet. And I'm kind of curious um, how that changed the trajectory of your business. Uh, did it change how, the, how, what products you're selling, how you're selling? We'll get into selling in a minute, but um, you, how, did, how did it impact demand? Kind of just talk about that for a couple of minutes. Yeah, so we were always a distributed company. We have an office in Ghana, but many of our team members were remote from Europe, US, um, Nigeria. So in terms of like us working as a company, it just kind of like, just like that, um, right. we were able to transition. We also uh, serve our customers because we have nationwide reach with a really small team. Uh, we serve our customers all on WhatsApp, email, text message, Zoom. 
the biggest impact was on our customer base when the lockdown came by the third week in March. We saw 67% of our high active users have revenue dropped to zero. An additional 10 to 15% of them had a decline in revenue in that period compared to uh, that third week of the month, the month prior. So across the board, all of our businesses were affected by the shutdown. Now the businesses that we tend to serve, those who like tend to adopt Oze typically are already selling a bit through WhatsApp or Instagram or Facebook. And so we pivoted our education to really help them do that better. How do you promote on these channels? If you promote luxury items or hair care products or clothing, jewelry, things that like we use a lot less now that we don't go out, how do you do tasteful digital marketing of those products so that people you know, spend on them? For us, the uncertainty was the hardest thing, like not knowing how long the lockdown was going to go and you know what the overall impacts would be. And, and we saw a decent recovery of those businesses once you know things became more clear. The biggest change was it gave us the push that we needed to start our COVID relief loan program. So we put out an application to our active users and said, you can apply for small loans to help keep survive your business and then get it back going after COVID. And we had a flexible grace period that didn't, the clock didn't start counting down until the president lifted the shutdown in Ghana. And who's the source of that funding? Is that your own program or is that a partnership with the government or? It's a very small amount of funding. So we're able to kind of fly under the radar as a pilot. Now everyone knows about it, so I don't really have to whisper so much, but uh, I did a pitch competition at the Harvard Innovation Lab, and I was uh, asked as my prize for a meeting with Jack Dorsey. It had a $5,000 budget uh, to pay for the flight or the dinner or the hotel or whatever. And when it became apparent that that wasn't going to happen, I was like, can we just give this money to our businesses as kind of soft loans? And Harvard agreed. So that was the source of the funding for that. So you still Jack Dorsey? It. No, Jack, if you're out there, um, I, yeah, it was a moment in time where he was so bullish on Africa. And then I think uh, the board of Twitter didn't, weren't thrilled with the idea that he would be moving to the, to the continent. He hasn't said he which said he was country spend a yet. Of his, like a quarter of his time in, in Africa or something Six like that. Months. Six months. Six months. Six yeah, months, yeah, but yeah. it was going to be over the, the U.S. presidential election. And the board was like, no, no, <laughs> you yeah, can't yeah, do that. Yeah. <laughs> Not so fast, Jack. There's stuff going on yeah. back here. Yeah. Well, I know uh, he's got some public critics that, you know, really took issue with that. Um, maybe in the future he'll he'll do that again. I know he's, he's I mean, he's a big crypto guy and I know, and, and, he's, and he's obviously, and uh, and I know he's very interested in the continent, but anyway, hopefully you'll meet him someday. <laughs> I'm yeah, not sure if he's day. listening. I got, you know, that'd be awesome if he were, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, anyway, okay, so so let's talk about, uh, well, I want to talk about kind of your sales, your customer acquisition model, kind of where it started and where you think it's going to evolve to, because I'm curious about that broadly in Africa, how you uh, acquire customers, because, uh, you know, there's the U.S. sort of, um, you know, product-led growth model and various other models, and I'm wondering how it works in your markets. Sure. So about a third of our customers come from referrals from existing customers, which is great. They like use Oze, they love Oze, they send a receipt to somebody on Oze, and then that person learns about Oze. Um, the, another uh, large amount come from partnerships with government agencies or other kind of small business aggregators. 
But where we're like, you know, spending and actively doing customer acquisition, it's mostly been on social media because of the auction model of Facebook ads. Uh, those ads are, are very, pretty cheap. I mean, relative to U.S. Mm -hmm. acquisition costs, like very cheap. Um, and so that was great. That was a really nice way to get the early adopters, the tech savvy people, those who were like really looking for a solution and could onboard themselves. I think that to get to the, the next group of users, we're going to need a little more human intervention. So we're still going to rely heavily on digital marketing to fill the top of the funnel. But this year we're going to be experimenting with uh, more handholding through the onboarding process because we have this drop off between kind of downloading registration and becoming active. But yeah. once we get you just to your third transaction, we have you for life um, or for as long as we've been alive. Um, and so it's really like it, it's in our economic best interest to handhold people across that chasm if necessary. Common SaaS problem is the, you know, getting act, people actually download the app to actually start using it, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, once yeah. you're engaged, you have them, right? But it, the, the drop up where, where you get churn is when they they never really get engaged with the platform, right? Mm -hmm. So okay, so how do you do that economically? Uh, what's the what's the model? So we're starting with. Um, kind of entry level young people who want a career in tech sales um, to come work with us and do phone calls, walk people through, um, do group sessions. So that's part of it. The other part is we're expanding our brand ambassadors, our affiliate marketing program, so that you know small business owners who want another source of income and are really good at explaining how Oze works can go out and talk to those people and We'll even provide them with leads. We don't care about them even finding their own leads, but we can provide them with leads in their community. I think those are the two major things that we're experimenting with right now. Okay. And last thing I want to cover is um, kind of, you know, advice for other startups, um, whether they're fintechs or agtechs or whatever, it doesn't matter, but, but uh, you know, African startups, entrepreneurs, um, you know, <laughs> what... What uh, mistakes did you make that you'd like others to avoid? And, and, mm. and kind of, you know, if you're if you're launching a business, uh, you know, what are the, the two or three things from your perspective that, you know, if you think if you focus on these few things or if you avoid these mistakes, you'll have a better shot. So I think, and this is a bit cliched, but it's definitely focus on like solving your problem and not falling in love with your solution because you can't know in advance, like what's going to work, what's not going to work. We focused on building features that we like, we're so excited about. We're like, this is going to unlock revenue growth and be such a better experience. And then the customers don't want it. And then we'll throw a little feature in somewhere else. And that's actually what will drive them to upgrade. And so you have to really say, okay, if the end goal is each small business grows and grows profitably, like what are all the different things I can try to make that, possible for them. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, getting a team that's really aligned behind your mission because in the early stage, you're working too hard and undercompensated. And so we're always asking people in the interview, like, why do you care about small business? And we find that employees who are, you know, really passionate, who really want to solve the problem, it's, oh, my mom put me through school because she ran a small shop. Or when I was in university, I was selling X, Y, and Z out of my dorm room. And I really wish I had a tool like Oze to help me. So I think it's like falling in love with the problem, finding other people who are in love with solving that problem, 
I think if you get there, you're kind of halfway to the goal. Um, and then I would say, I mean, this is easier said than done, but try to find investors within your local ecosystem. Like money is more freely flowing, more risk seeking uh, abroad in the US primarily. But if you can get that one or two or three local investors who have in their phone, the heads of all the big corporates, access to really good talent, like that person is worth their weight in gold um, as an investor into your company. So to, to try to fundraise locally. Yeah, yeah. And well, the old Silicon Valley rule with the 20 minute rule of, you know, don't invest if you can't drive to visit the, the founder. The, I think that's no longer really applicable, but I think the idea of, you know, having somebody who understands your market intimately you know, has to matter. Yeah. I mean, we raised this whole round on Zoom, um, so. It's not, it's not what it used to be. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's funny because people have learned, like, you don't need to go buy somebody dinner to, to you know, in face-to-face -face anymore. Uh, just as much business is being closed on Zoom or whatever. Uh, so I, I wonder what, after we're done, you know, how many of those dinners start happening again or if it just keeps yeah. being done on Zoom. Well, yeah. I'd be curious. When, mm -hmm. when we were raising money really early on, when we had no product in market even, the people who committed most quickly are all people I met in person at conferences, at events. Like our first check was someone who I met at like a meetup in Boston um, where they can actually like, I think it's hard to convey enthusiasm, passion, expertise, skill, all of these things uh, in a 30 minute Zoom that might come across more readily in person. Right. But once you're at a stage like a little bit more where you have numbers to talk about, and you know a history of executing, then I think the in person is nice, but it's not needed. Right. That's that's probably pretty accurate. I think, and I think uh, you know we do events here at Big Five, and uh, we're excited to we're doing virtual events, and we're really having a lot of fun with that. And but I think um, we're very much looking forward to getting back to having in person events. When that happens, we're still not sure. Um, but there's something about waiting in line for a glass of wine and talking to the person next to you. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> just hard to repeat it's hard to replicate that you know and the magic yeah. that sort of happens from those kind of serendipitous uh, uh meetings you have at, at, at events so yeah i i think that comes back you know i'm not sure about all the one-to-ones that were done in person in the past i think a lot of those will continue to be virtual but we'll see we'll see a lot, a lot of will change i don't think i close money. yeah i don't think i close a single deal over dinner i don't know maybe i'm right I'm no no that, that may be a little old school at least I didn't yeah. say golf, right? <laughs> um, yeah, if that's fair. But uh, meetings, you know, in person. You know, yeah. Meetings. Um, anyway, yeah, great. Uh, one thing I want to leave with just for fun. Tell the Anderson Cooper story. <laughs> um, I think everyone so knows who I, he is because it's seen and it's pretty international. So I think he's a pretty well-known Yeah. Person. Yeah. Um, I was a student at the Harvard Kennedy School uh, I graduated in 2019 and we had an opportunity, like the first town hall, it was before Biden had said he was running for president. Like at the time it was just like uh, Buttigieg, Harris, Klobuchar, Warren and um, Bernie Sanders. And you could, you were invited as a student of Harvard to go to the students um, town hall up in New Hampshire. And so I put my name in, I put in questions, CNN called and they're like, you're gonna be shortlisted for a quest your question about 
um, like tech pl platforms and monopoly for Senator Elizabeth Warren. And so the Anderson Cooper love story is basically just, you know, I got up to ask my question to Senator Warren, um, who is also was my neighbor and someone who I uh, definitely admire. So a little bit nervous and Anderson Cooper is like, oh, this is Megan McCormick. She's a graduate student at MIT and Harvard and she writes for Forbes. Like she makes me feel like such a schlub. Um, <laughs> so yeah. it was a nice icebreaker. I went into that being like, you know, I want a good answer from Elizabeth Warren. Like she's so far left. Like you can't break up big tech. Like I love Amazon. And her answer was like, not exactly a straight answer. It was a little bit of a political answer, but somehow I came away from that event being like, Elizabeth Warren must be my president. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, but uh, hopefully after the next, after her Senate seat turns over, she'll go to Washington and be in the cabinet. We'll see. We'll see. So yeah, <laughs> the the benefit of retail politics, I guess. Anyway, I did. So it was a fun story. Yeah. I saw a little clip of it on on Twitter. So I figured I'd ask you yeah. about it. Anyway, great. Thank you so much for joining today, and it's been a lot of fun and a lot of fun to learn about your company and your perspective. So we really appreciate it, and uh, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, we hope you enjoyed that interview with Megan. And just a quick reminder before we go. On March 10th, Big Five Digital will be producing the Big Five SME Small Business FinTech Summit. It's a virtual event, and we hope you uh, plan on attending. Mark your diary from March 10th, and look for details on bigfivedigital.org. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us, and see you soon. Bye-bye.